Hey everyone, welcome back to A Hole in the Ground and Happy New Year everyone. Hey everyone, welcome back to A Hole in the Ground and our new season of podcasts for this year. This is my co-host Katie Manns. And this is my co-host Sarah White. This week, or I say, I say week, maybe month. This episode, we we'll see. Ha- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this episode, we have our usual news, wherein we complain about the new Amazon series, and then we have a very special guest for this week's podcast, and and a short, short shadow fact. So I think we'll we'll start off with some of the news. Let's see. So the first thing, of course, um, this is maybe old news for some of you because it's been out for a while, but we do know that J.A. Bayona is going to be directing the first two episodes of the big new Amazon series. Yeah, I've seen this name before and I remember looking him up on IMDb and clearly it made zero impression on me because I have no remembrance of what he's directed previously. Yeah, um, I mean, he did Jurassic World, The Fallen Kingdom, but I didn't watch it, I have to say. And he did perhaps maybe more interestingly do The Orphanage with Guillermo del Toro who's been involved in some Tolkien things in the past. I'm happy to hear of the Del Toro pedigree. Um, That's good to me. I really wanted Del Toro to direct The Hobbit, but, you know. Well, likewise, but here we are. And then he also did... (laughs) He also did A Monster Calls and the first two episodes of Penny Dreadful. So, I mean, not not terrible, maybe? We'll see how it goes. I haven't seen Monster Calls or Penny Dreadful. Are they good? They're fun, but I don't... No, if they're like great. I mean, I'm sure people will fight me on that, but um, they're like, they're not fantastic, but they're not bad, but they're not bad. Yeah. I'm scared about the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom thing because that seems like one of those movies where like, have you ever seen the production photos for Marvel, Marvel movies where it's just like a green screen and actors wearing like funny bodysuits and they're just like completely divorced from any actual physical objects with yeah. with which they might interact. Well, actually, I mean, in fairness, the Jurassic Park looks a lot like that exactly because it even has some of the same actors as the Marvel series, I think, because Chris Pratt is in it. Oh, right. That would be why. But I remember this even from when they were filming the Hobbit movies, that there was way, way more green screen that they had ever used in the original trilogy. Weren't some of the actors from the original trilogy a little unhappy about that? They were. If they I remember were. correctly. Yeah, it, it, I think it's, it feels like cheating. It does. I, I mean, I I have always maintained, and I will die on this hill, that The Fellowship of the Ring is by far and away the best of the three movies. And not only that, the first half of The Fellowship of the Ring is the best of the six movies, if you can call them that or whatever. Um, and that's because of the practical effects and the physical objects and the sets that were created. It's expensive and it's work and it made it good. Oh, yeah. No, the practical effects and the I remember getting there were four books about the makings of the movies that I had gotten because I was working at a bookshop at at the time and I bought every single book that came out about the Lord of the Rings. And I was looking at all the armor that they made and all the swords and how everybody was like an actual human and not just a CG, you know, Mm -hmm. puppet. And it just made everything feel so much more real. And this is something I think we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast as well, about how the movies have aged. And I think yeah. it's it's all of the, the real stuff in them that helps them not to have aged as much as they could have. So hopefully this guy, J.A. Bayona, 
is someone we can trust, but again, we won't know, so... I don't trust anything about this show. (laughs) Me either. (laughs) What else do we have? Uh, We do know, we do know, however, that it has been renewed for a second season already. No way, dude. No, uh uh-uh. Are you kidding me? It's almost like if you own your own distribution company and you're making the movies, you can just say whatever you want. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is the thing. So um, apparently they've got content through till the end of season five, and they've definitely renewed it for season two. So we'll see. This is actually quite interesting because, I mean, there's a huge gap in the market right now post Game of Thrones. Yes. And so we've got the Lord of the Rings series coming out. It's pitched for 2021, I think now. Um, And then this year we had uh, The Witcher come out, which has actually been renewed for a second season already and has been forecast to run for at least seven seasons. Did you like, uh, let's do a brief Witcher aside. I have tried to play the game unsuccessfully. I will try again. I have not yet watched the show. Tell me your opinions. Okay, well, I am a little bit biased because the third Witcher game, The Wild Hunt, is probably my favorite video game of all time Mm -hmm. i think it's absolutely fantastic it's one of the best narrative driven games i think i've ever played it's gorgeous Mm -hmm. the side quests are all like real quests and the story is just so so gripping and all the dlc is just like a whole extra game Mm -hmm. and i just it's a truly a joy to play so i actually loved it that was my entry into the witcher though and after i had played the game and absolutely loved every minute of it I then tried to read the books and found them a bit difficult going. I think it's partially because they, they're not the best books. And then the translation from Polish to English was also not the best translation. So mm-hmm. it's they're, they're not as good as they could be, I think. And the show is based on the books rather than on the games, which I think was a good move because, I mean, you, okay. otherwise you're doing the same thing twice and everyone's going to go into yeah. it expecting it to be exactly like the games. Okay. okay. So the first season was, um, it was difficult in some ways because they did some really interesting things with the timelines, which made it very difficult mm-hmm. to follow if you hadn't already read the books. And it's it's got some good monsters i will give it that and it does Good. feel like the right universe the scenery is gorgeous the characters are fun henry cavill is not very convincing for the first two episodes but then after that he kind of finds his stride and he's a really big fan of the series so he kind of starts to he, i think he's really enjoying himself to be honest so that comes through a little bit which is nice um i won't say it's great film but it was fun it was fun i liked it i mean i would if that's the review that we get for this amazon series i would be like surprise happy let's say i would be happy for that review um i was just reading the bottom of this article from deadline and one thing that really does give me actually a lot of hope is that the visual effects supervisor is the guy who did the revenant oh Um, good that was good i liked the bear mauling it was a good bear mauling yeah and i obviously loved the scenery the way that the special effects incorporated the scenery you know there's a lot of famous production notes about how they were like you know trudging around the canadian arctic to film this movie so hopefully they similarly will trudge around the um, wilds of new zealand just like they did for the pj movies and incorporate that with good special effects right yeah so the other the other thing that keeps giving me hope and i see this every so often i'm i'm reminded of it is that they do have tom shippy and John Howe both on contract somehow with this. That's great. So, I mean, hope. There's hope somehow. There's hope. <laughs> there's always hope. Let hope remains <laughs> while the fellowship is true. Um, what else we got going on this week? Well, news-wise? kind of the next thing that I want to talk about is that we're getting a little bit more casting news trickling out. 
We have mm-hmm. had Robert Aramayo cast um, possibly for the lead. We talked about this character, Beldor, last time. We criticized his name. Mm-hmm. We said we didn't like it. <laughs> but this is now uh, the person they have cast for this. Um, and he played the young Ned Stark in Game of Thrones. Now, I haven't really seen all of Game of Thrones, so I, I don't know. I assume that... At some point, Sean Bean dies, and that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. No, I I mean I know a little bit more about it than that from the internet. But um, (laughs) but that being said, I don't I don't know enough about it to actually place this person. I know I know enough about it to place him. I believe he. So the scenes that he was in in the show are interesting because they were scenes that everybody was sort of waiting for to confirm a fan theory apparently done with the some sort of consent of the George R. R. Martin. So he's in these scenes that are a flashback to events that apparently took place, which flesh out the background of Jon Snow. So, you know. Oh, I know about that fan theory. I'm not going to say anything about it, yeah. but I know about it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yes. I'm, I'm picking in, up what you're putting down. Yes, you're picking up what I'm putting down. I'm reading his credits. He's in a movie called Nocturnal Animals that I really liked. I thought that was a good movie. I have no idea what he did in it. Um, I do vaguely remember him from Game of Thrones, and I, I thought it was a good sword fight, so that's good. I love a good sword fight. Yeah, actually, I think it, the sword fight that is the scene that he is in, or that, I, that I suspect he's in, is one of one that really actually sticks out to me in a show of a lot of sword fights, so that's good. Um, he's going to be in that movie Antebellum, which is coming out, which is by the people who did like um, Us and Get Out. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like sort of um, like a... It just stars Janelle Monae. Oh, love Janelle Monae. Can't wait. Anyway, that looks good. Excited for that. So we'll see about this guy. I don't know. They're just really trying to cast a type of looking person. Yeah, it's... I don't know what it is. Kind of getting back to The Witcher really quickly. I know this is not a podcast about that, but the people that they cast (laughs) in The Witcher, um, they specifically cast a lot of people who were Polish or looked Polish. um, And they Mm -hmm. actually had a lot of racial diversity in the cast as well. So props to them. Yeah, props to them. Hopefully Amazon follows suit. But again, we haven't seen much to confirm that that will happen at this point. So maybe... Again, we aren't hopeful. No, no, we're not. The other thing that I heard is, I mean, this is this seems like a little bit more like hearsay and actual, than actual stuff, is that uh, Maxim mm. Baldry is going to play a significant role in the series. Who's that? Um, he's from the series Years and Years, but yeah, don't know a lot about him. It's also been reported that Joseph Maul will be playing the villain. He's the guy, okay, he is definitely from Lord of the Rings, or um, Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So he is the one who played the uncle, Mr. Yes. Uncle, whatever. Mr. Uncle, uncle Snow or <laughs> Uncle Snow or whatever. It says Maul is believed to be playing a villain named Orin in the straight to series effort. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah. I like him. I thought he was good. I think it's smart that they're trying to pull in alumna people who have been on um, Game of Thrones that will, I mean, if I'm Amazon, I'm trying to fill the fantasy hole, right? So yeah, I think perhaps the most interesting bit of news, though, with uh, with the casting is that on uh, the Graham Norton show, I think it was even back in 2017, Norton asked Ian McKellen whether he would be annoyed to see another actor playing Gandalf. And he said, what do you mean another Gandalf? 
haven't said yes because I haven't been asked, but are you suggesting that someone else is going to play it? Gandalf is over 7,000 years old, so I'm not too old. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, that would he's, be so he's such good. such a delight. That would be great. He is just absolute delight. Perfect. Like, I love that he's just like, how dare you even come in my face, in my presence, and talk to me about another Gandalf, which true yeah no true um and the last comment and we talked about um some names of some of the characters that were coming out earlier and there was a character called tyra this is apparently going to be played by uh markella cavanaugh so mm-hmm. we'll see okay. we're, we're starting to get a few faces i won't be surprised if the names change but yeah i won't either i mean it's so early it's easy to change a name cool well Casting seems to be continuing. Uh, have they started filming? Do you know? I don't know if they have. I don't think they don't have know. yet. I think they're planning mm-hmm. to start sometime this coming year or, well, it mm-hmm. should be early this year if they're planning for a 2021 release, but. I guess I should start following these people on Instagram and watch for them to post like pics from New Zealand, you know? Yeah, exactly. Oh, the things I do for the pod, you know. Follow anyway. a bunch of randos on Instagram. I was doing that anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> It's like my whole life. Okay, cool. Thanks for the news roundup, Sarah. Oh, one one yeah. bit of an aside. As I was trolling around, oh, I did yeah. also see a comment from John Reese davies um, You know, of course, he played Gimli. Um, mm-hmm. He actually has criticized Amazon for making the series too soon. And he said, King. it's not about doing it better. It's about making more money. That's all. Yes, he's right. He's absolutely right. I think he said some weird shit in the past, but he is dead on balls accurate with this one. Yeah. Oh, gosh. He's an interesting one. I saw him, like, there was this really awful, awful movie that came out a while ago called um, In the Name of the King. Had Jason mm-hmm. Statham in it. And it was essentially... <gasps> what? Speaking of movies that have been made from video games, it was made from a video game and it felt like all the cutscenes strung together and it was just terrible. <laughs> um, but I watched it because some of my friends were extras in it. And John Reese davies was in it. And I was like, what oh. are you doing here? Oh, buddy. Yeah, he has had such an interesting career. Oh, um, gosh, hasn't he, though? But he's right. He's right. It's just about cash. Trying to get that Game of Thrones cash. Anyway, with, with all of that background in mind, uh, I think it's time that we move on to our special guest. Let's move on to our very, very special guest. We're going to talk today about the music from The Lord of the Rings, specifically the beautiful score created by Howard Shore. And to do that, we have a very special guest, star of stage and screen. Um, her name is Anna Manns, and she's my sister. What? <laughs> we'll get into why we invited Anna in just a second. But very briefly, I just want to introduce Howard Shore, who created this beautiful set of music that we are so lucky to have. Um, talk a little bit about the production and the writing of the score for these movies. And then talk a little bit about the influences of opera on this score, and then talk specifically about four pieces of choral music included in Howard Score's Howard Score, <laughs> Howard Shore's <laughs> Howard Score score for uh, these movies. So Howard Shore, of course, um, Canadian, famously Canadian. He was born in Toronto in 1946, so another Toronto connection for us. He had a really detailed filmography at the time he was chosen to make the music for these films. He'd work with really big deal directors like David Cronenberg, Martin Scorsese, Fincher, Tim Burton. Um, so he had a pretty long list of, you know, experience by the time he was selected to write the music for these three movies. And one thing I think is really interesting about Howard Shore is that he is quoted as saying he wanted there to be three beautiful pieces of art, the books, the films, and the music that he wrote 
for these films. And he ended up writing over 10 hours of music over an entire decade. He worked on this project for a decade. He also did the orchestration. He worked on the orchestration for these uh, for these pieces of music, which I, I gather is not always what happens, which I think is really interesting. He actually did the orchestration by dividing the orchestra into ranges instead of into instrument families. So whereas you might have had the woodwinds group together normally, Howard Shore divided it his orchestra into like low, middle, and high sections, I suppose. Anna can, again, feel more about this in. But like I said, 10 hours of music over a decade. The directors were particularly worried about getting the music right for these films. They knew it would be a really demanding job to hire someone to score these films. And it seems like they kind of picked the exact right person. Howard Shore had had a little bit of experience with Tolkien, but he really sort of got the bug, it seems like, when he started working on these pieces of music which we are very lucky for. One really big important part of the music that Howard Shore created for these films is the influence of opera, which is why we have invited my sister on because she sings opera. So we thought Anna could fill us in a little bit. He used Italian opera to sort of I don't know, ground some of the emotional impact he was inspired by Italian opera for its emotive quality. But of course, the opera that's most closely associated with Tolkien and with this music is German opera, a.k.a. Wagner. So it really closely resembles, most closely resembles, according to Doug Adams, who wrote the sort of definitive Bible, if you will, about the music of The Lord of the Rings. Shout out to Doug Adams for his amazing book. Most closely resembles an opera called Parsifal. Um, it's a little more Catholic, <laughs> which I think is interesting. Catholicism, obviously, a big deal to Tolkien, but... After that little brief intro, Anna, can you tell us what your experience of Tolkien is and your sort of experience with Lord of the Rings? Yeah, so just going to get out there right now and say I know very little about Lord of the Rings. My experience with Lord of the Rings uh, is entirely my sister. Um, <laughs> I like. I think my first memory of Lord of the Rings is like. I mean, we're, so we're five years apart. Like the movies are coming out. I'm like trying to sit and watch maybe the first one with Katie, but like I was just so confused. I was like, "What is happening? <laughs> Who are these people? Like, who's Aragorn? He's like super rugged and hot, and like these elves yes. that are like." so beautiful and like sing all these cool songs and I was like this is cool but like I don't get it and I think I would like ask you all of these questions and you were just like please leave <laughs> yeah probably true <laughs> but honestly like I'm super annoying as so like I get it as a child I was probably like very overbearing <laughs> <laughs> so with that said I don't know much except I sing opera as Katie said so oh. um when uh, she asked me to be a part of this episode, I thought like, okay, well, let me dive into what I know. And the first thing that I found, as you've said, is that this was like very operatically driven in the way that the music was composed. Um, so one thing that really stuck out to me, I mean, there's no denying like the influence of Wagnerian opera on this score. And like, so Wagner, you know, he's like pretty problematic <laughs> as like yes. a composer. Um, there are all of these conversations going on in the opera world constantly about like, okay, well, do you still perform these really epic, amazing works if you like don't agree with the politics? And like, you know, he was super 
anti-Semitic and like wrote theses on like hating Jewish people. Like he was very outspoken about it. It wasn't just like, oh, he was casually like not liking Jewish people in the time when a lot of people were not liking Jewish people. He was like very active about it. Side note. So. (laughs) Yeah. So this Wagner comes up in the world of opera a lot is what you're saying and sort of the way people are relitigating how to deal with Wagner. Yeah, because he made so many changes to opera that like we still follow today so like something really simple Wagner Wagner, uh, changed the way that the curtain um, came in and out so for his theater in Germany um, he before Wagner curtains would uh, open from the bottom up and he was like that's ridiculous why would the first thing that somebody want to see be their feet and so he's the person who changed it from like opening from the center so it's like everything comes from the center of the stage and it's the first thing you see Wagner did that Um, his orchestras were huge and um, so there's a lot of similarity in how Howard Shore decided to score this opera Um, I mean and I'm not an orchestra person so I'm not even the best in this situation but like I'd say an average orchestra is probably like anywhere between 50 to 100 people Mm -hmm. um Wagner's were like well over 100 and he had his own instruments that like were created for him he had like a it, it was a huge orchestra huge demands and Howard Shore did a really similar thing so like this between everybody like the the choir the orchestras the like different onstage instrumental bands and like additional choirs that he used throughout the score it could be up to like 330 players jeez just like massive yeah also i thought it was really cool how like not only was it massive um but he used a lot of unusual instruments so like like you said a little bit earlier, a normal orchestra section uh, or orchestra sections would be like the strings, the brass, the woodwinds, the percussion. Mm-hmm. But he like has mandolins and bagpipes and like <laughs> fiddles. And then so on, and then on top of that, he used a bunch of like traditional Chinese and Indian and Japanese instruments. And I mean, like you guys can, of course, like chime in on this part. Uh, to me, that is just sort of like, he wanted to, it seems that he really wanted to create a really specific and like maybe otherworldly quality to the sound of this music. Like it wanted, mm. maybe like he wanted it to not sound like something that our like Western ears would have been used to because it is Middle Earth. You know, it's something that like is not within our like normal soundscape. And so like using all of these traditional instruments that like, I've never even heard, I can't even pronounce the names of a lot of the instruments that he used in this like giant orchestration. But Mm -hmm. like, I think that it adds a color that is like, makes it more ambiguous. Yeah. Well, he definitely wanted to create music that sounded otherworldly for specific scenes and groups of people. So one thing that gets talked about a lot with this score is that he really relies on light motifs and repeated Mm -hmm. motifs to like you said earlier, you were really confused by these movies when you were younger. One thing that I think he wanted to do was to try to use musical cues to help the audience know where we were, right? So there's a specific leitmotif and musical cue for so much in this film. Like there's one called the Fellowship theme. There's one called the Shire. So different places, different groups of people, different races have their own leitmotifs, which are supposed to call to mind 
these groups of people and be almost like a little like spark notes to help us know where we are in the story and who the players are, right? Totally. And that uh, is, I mean, so Wagner is like coined with the leitmotif. He's sort of in, I mean, Wagner was like a very narcissistic man. Like I just took this (laughs) opera history class last semester and I had to read these like primary sources of Wagner's writings and like, oh my God, he was so self-important. And he was like, I came up with the leitmotif. I'm a genius and everything I do is perfect, which like we can go back in all kinds of art and be like, oh, cool motifs of music to like signal a character but I will (laughs) give him credit where credit is due and that he like really revolutionized it and it's like okay and his were very small themes and I think that film scores have taken this and especially this film score like there's no denying the the influence of leitmotif like you said like the shire theme the fellowship theme um there are hundreds of themes that he uses throughout to yeah like cue the audience in and i think it's extremely effective like there's this pathos of hearing a theme stated one time and then hearing it stated maybe a little bit differently as the story changes so yeah that i mean it's huge in this composition yeah i want to briefly talk just an aside about the vocal music and I'm going to just directly crib from Doug Adams here and read a little selection. The composer also proposed the integration of extensive choral writing, even more extensive than the filmmakers had originally hoped. So he really kind of got taken with the idea of incorporating a lot of vocal music. Lord of the Rings is the most complex fantasy world ever created, so I'm holding a mirror up to it musically and attempting to create something that's in the image of it. I had the idea of using Tolkien's languages to express another layer of his thinking. It's a way to get the mythology back into the film. And one thing that I've always really loved as sort of a deep lore Tolkien person, and I'm sure this is true for you as well, Sarah, is that scenes that get cut that we might miss, that might fill in things that we love, or even hint at the like, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of mythology that Tolkien wrote are indicated by the choral music and the lyrics sung by the performers in this music. Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. And that's something that is just so many, there's so many layers to it in a way, because you're like, oh, I really wish there was more about Barad and Luthien. Oh, great, here we've got um, Aragorn singing a song about it. Right. I've also had just one thought about the different musical instruments and things that were used as well. Um, Do you remember in the Lament for Gandalf, the song in Lothlorien? Yes, I do. Um, and how otherworldly it sounds. Um, and that's, I think, because he used a Phrygian scale for that particular song, which set it apart from the rest of the music. So it was really unique to Lothlorien. Also, I'm super fascinated by all this, by the way. Me too. I love this. Anna, you have been totally my, like, I think that my interest in music, like, you know, music as an art form is totally based on you. Like, I was thinking about this today, like, I loved going to your chorus concerts when I was a kid. Like I was like a shitty high school kid. I was like 17 years old. Like, I don't know, a piece of shit. Like everybody is when they're 17. And I went to like, I think I went to like most of your chorus concerts and you were in like middle school and I loved them. And I just, I loved it. I would always cry. Like I cried at like everyone. <laughs> I love that. This is like total side note, uh, but like I loved that you loved the Rachmaninoff Vesper so much because that was like my favorite choral piece I've ever sung. Oh my gosh. Anyways, I Aww, just like cute. it. It's just, yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate that. It's like, I don't know the, 
I never thought that I would love choral music either. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't, yeah. like, I really want to sing choral music, but like I realized that this year was the first year that I haven't been in a choir since I was Aww. 12. Really? And I like really miss it. So what's the like, have you ever sung like in a choir with an orchestra, like the kind of singing that would have been yeah. done in the production of these films? What's mm-hmm. that like? Like, tell me like, just give us a little picture. What is it like to sing with an orchestra in a choir like that? It's it's really overwhelming. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I mean, most of my choir experience is either a cappella um, or like with a piano and 30 voices. Or you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, so just like the scope of singing with an orchestra is, it, it's just, it multiplies everything so much. And I I think that orchestras probably don't like using choirs as much because they have to play a lot softer because, mm-hmm. you know, like if even if there are 100 voices with 50 players, it like the, the instruments will always win. So there's always this like struggle of balance when you're singing with an mm-hmm. orchestra or uh, with a lot of instruments, because I mean, you know, one is is man-made and one is a body like there's just there there's a different I mean and then of course there's like difference in frequencies and whatever but regardless I feel like my experience in singing orchestral works I mean they're amazing they're like I it's just so grand it's like so everything's just heightened I feel like it's Mm -hmm. kind of similar to opera in a lot of ways yeah, I'm thinking about it. Like it brings me back to like what it's like to sing in an opera because that's all accompanied by orchestra. Right. Um, it's just it's more like about spectacle, I feel like, than like maybe more intimate moments of just voices, you know? Yeah, I have just brief like brief little questions for you about what some words mean. Um, some opera words that came up when I was reading Doug Adams. He described Sam as a Papageno and Mary and Pippin as Compromarios. What are those words? <laughs> um, I'm, yeah. So I'm going to look up Compromario just to like know that I know the right thing, but I can talk a lot about the Papageno thing. So, okay. Yeah. Tell me. Uh, so Papageno, Katie, you know how I was in um, The Magic Flute last summer? Yes. It's an opera by Mozart. You were Papageno, right? I was Papagena. I was oh, uh, the love interest. Mm. So uh, Papageno is, is a specific character in, um, in Mozart's The Magic Flute. Super popular opera. If anybody has ever seen an opera, it's probably a Mozart opera, and it's probably Magic Flute. So Papageno, he... <sighs> He represents like the common man, like the everyday oh. man. So that that makes a lot of sense about Sam. He's funny. He's like, he's shown, and I don't know if this is the same for Sam, but like he's shown a lot of mercy and forgiveness. Like he's not a perfect character, but he's like extremely lovable and like mm-hmm. funny and kind of ridiculous and kind of like, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? He's not dumb, but he's like he, he's very, he's very simple. Would you say he has sort of like um like a I don't know like a earthy or like kind of like I don't know. He, to me, Sam like is totally epitomized by becoming the local mayor after the story is done. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, uh, very earthy. I mean, he's yeah. So he's the character that in the Magic Flute everybody roots for. Like, okay, honestly. 
I guess technically the main characters are love interests Tamino and Pamina, but like compared to Papageno and Papageno's journey, like everybody relates to him. I think that's what makes him so uh, timeless is that he's mm-hmm. an incredibly relatable character. There are a lot of people who say Sam is like the low key hero of Lord of the Rings. So I think that that yeah. really tracks. Tell me about the other one, the Compromario. And okay. do you remember who Merry and Pippin are? Ooh. <laughs> important question <laughs> not remember okay so there's these two there's two okay so there's four hobbits who go on the trip right right, right. frodo got the ring mm-hmm. sam best friend and then there's two goof ones two like oh, little goofy oh. ones yeah i remember them okay so they are described as the compra mario characters what does that mean okay yeah so a compra mario uh it comes from the Italian word con primario, which just means with the primary. So it's all it means is it's a small supporting role in an opera. It's uh, somebody who doesn't sing like a full length aria or like maybe mm-hmm. doesn't have any long scenes, um, but they are like they're like, you know, maybe like the yeah, they're they're just like supporting characters. That's really all that it means. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you guys want to move into some songs? Anna, you got any other closing thoughts about the general stuff before we move into dissecting some specific pieces of music and music that features choral singers? Oh, um, I don't know if this is important, but I thought that it was really interesting. You started to talk about like the texts that were used in the music. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was really cool how the libretto... Um, it was derived from like several different sources, like songs and poems written by Tolkien. Yes. And like... Some of the stuff was actually like just adapted material for the movies, right? Yes, yes, so. much of it. So some some of the songs, like there's one that Sarah mentioned earlier called the Song of Baron and Luthien. Baron and Luthien is like an ancient love story that Tolkien wrote. So at the time of the Lord of the Rings, it would have been like a myth or a legend, and so Tolkien wrote that. And so there are pieces of that writing which are then sung by Aragorn in a deleted scene that's in the extended editions. So some of it comes directly from writing that Tolkien did, but a lot of it was written um, by the writers of the films in combination with basically like a Tolkien language expert. So it would be the writers of the film and this Tolkien language expert would work together to create, did you, the libretto is just the words, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Libretto equals text. Okay, thank you. So they would work together to create the libretto for these songs, basically, uh, it, when they weren't drawing directly from something that Tolkien wrote. Okay, yeah, that, I, that's just really cool. I mean, I mean, it makes sense, but it's just not something you like think about. Like, yeah, where did they get the text for these songs? I also want to like side note say that like I was always super intrigued by all these movies, and Katie was not like bad. I was just like too young. <laughs> like Katie you was- were too young. I was too young and I was just like, this is cool. But like, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's like yeah. my general thing about it. <laughs> and Sarah, you can probably say a similar thing. But when I think back to the first time that I saw these films as an 11 year old, like I saw the first movie and I will never forget my experience of listening to this music in a movie theater. Like the one that first the one that first got me, and we're not actually going to do this song, it, it didn't make the cutting room floor, but the Weathertop theme, where the nine writers are closing in on everyone at the top of Weathertop, and the sound just builds and builds and builds, and it's so creepy and scary. Oh, that was just like, I was freaking out as an 11-year-old, and I loved it. 
as as an 11 year old having waited in line at the movie theater to see this thing on opening night oh gosh i was unbearable as well because a i was wired and b i just reread the entire series for this one <laughs> evening <laughs> and oh, all my God. friends probably hated me by the end of it but yeah no i think for me the song that I probably got the most into was one of the ones we're going to talk about today, actually, The Bridge of Khazad Doom, because it's it's so, so ominous. Let's segue straight into The Bridge of Khazad Doom. This is a piece of music, and I'll just, for those of you following along, I made a Spotify playlist, which I will share so you guys can listen to these four songs. It's, they're all on Spotify. They're taken directly from the complete recordings of the scores, which have been released, you know, since the movies have been out. So Casa Doom, I watched this scene two nights ago to prepare for this. It begins at the very moment when Gandalf realizes what they're in for, realizes that there's a Balrog. Anna, so actually, before I describe what's going on, Anna, what were your impressions of this song, Casa Doom? Like, what did you think when you started listening to the song about the vocals, about like, just just tell me your impressions. Yeah. Um. So I, the first time I did just listen, but I will say like, I found this really great um thing on YouTube that I can also give you a link for that like took, um it, it played like the movie in the background with the music for this oh, song. Yeah. And it had like a lot of the uh, like light motifs and things put on the, the like visually and uh, taken excerpts from this book that you've been talking about, like about, um, and what's his name? The guy who wrote it, Doug Adams, a lot of like his uh, analyses also. So that was actually like super helpful. But regardless, the first time I listened, I was like, okay, something's going on. Like <laughs> low, like, like in the bottom of the male register. Is like how it opens. Danger music. Danger music. Yeah. Yes. Danger music. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is creepy. Um, <laughs> and it also like it, it has a lot of use of like the drone. Like mm-hmm. it's the same rhythm over and over, the same pitches, very like chant like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one impression. But then I was like, okay there must be just like a lot happening. Like, I don't know where in the movie this happens, but yes. it has a lot of changes, you know, that I was sure were in response to whatever was happening dramatically. Yes. Yes. So like a lot of different, like a lot happens in this, these like however many minutes, like eight minutes maybe. Yeah. I think this is the longest one we chose. It's about eight minutes long. And there's one specific moment where you're hearing all of this sound build and you're hearing the male voices sort of chanting going, really low as like those big drums are playing right and it's getting worse and worse and worse and it builds to a bit of a crescendo and then you hear the fellowship theme which mm-hmm. everybody knows it's the and then the fellowship theme breaks in really 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 fast and then it's cut off immediately right yeah. so what that means musically i think is like and this is exactly what happens in the film we're experiencing all this fear and suspense and danger. And then there's a brief moment where there's sort of a triumph where the fellowship kind of has a little bit of a win, but then it's immediately cut short by mm-hmm. something awful happening again. So that's kind of what's happening in this scene. It's like little victories, big victories. They're trying to basically, Anna, I don't know if you watched, you said you watched the scene, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're trying to like get across this bridge to escape this Balrog. And a Balrog mm-hmm. is like one of the biggest bads you can encounter in this world. Like, if this were a video game, this would be one of the worst bosses that you could possibly have to face, basically. <laughs> Is that true, Sarah? It's so true. And I was actually just thinking when you hear the music start, you're like, 
if this were a video game, you'd be like, oh no, now I know what all the potions in the previous room were for. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I know, I stocked up, exactly. So I just want to briefly, I don't know if the lyrics to this song were something that you saw in your video. I did, I have them right here. Oh my god, I love them. There's one part specifically that is stuck in my head all the time. It's the Filuma, Filuma. and it's so creepy and it's just flames lick our skin yes rips our heart no 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 it's so good it's so good this is my this is also probably my favorite song on the soundtrack yes it's so cool so anna the language the language that this song is in is a language called kuzduel so this is a language of the dwarves so the dwarves are bad no no, the dwarves are not bad. Their language is gruff. It's described by Adams as basically being pretty utilitarian. They're not people, you know, prone to poetry, if you will. So their language is gruff and utilitarian. They're miners by trade. They're craftspeople. They're really good at making things. They're the, the race, basically, who create these beautiful underground dwellings, and they create, they mine things and create these ores and metals and jewelry. They're famous for making really beautiful pieces of jewelry, armor, etc., Gotcha. So, yes, their language is kind of gruff, a little, like, clipped. And it's taken... Hold on, I took some notes. Sarah, you can fill this in, uh, probably as well, just about the influences on Kuzduel the language. Okay, so I have a little info, and it's not going to be good. So we talked a little bit in the last episode, and even in this episode, about some of the links between anti-Semitism and this stuff. Oh, no, here we are again, yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Has has some links to Semitic languages, right? And I guess what that means, Anna, is stable consonants. I don't know what that is. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. But anyway, there are links between Kuzduel, the language of the dwarves, and um, Semitic languages. So again, another piece in the, uh, this is maybe a little bit um, anti-Semitic Venn diagram, I would say. Because the dwarves are, you know, associated with money and wealth and you know, all the sorts of anti-Semitic tropes that get played out. It is interesting, though, that they actually use the Elder Futhark runes for spelling it, though. So he's using Anglo-Saxon runes to spell as, as well, Semitically linked language. Hmm. Right. That is interesting. I didn't know they did that. Is that, that's what the runes are? Are the runes in, like, Lord of the Rings? He created his own runes, though, right? Or were they based on? Uh, No, he didn't. He stole them straight up. Oh, I did not know that. I always thought he created his own. They're the same as the old English ones, except the meanings are a bit different. Um, So you couldn't look at Dwarvish and be like, oh yeah, that's exactly like um, old English. It's the same, mostly the same symbols, but then he just uses them for different letters. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Shout out to the soloist in this piece of music, Mabel Falletu? Yeah. Uh, really beautiful piece of music that happens right at the end and uh you know the music kind of breaks right at the end and becomes really sad it's because Gandalf dies I know (laughs) so something about the like light motifs there that I was just like oh my god that is so sad and so touching so yeah like when he dies in the uh is it Moria Moria yeah that's the location Okay, so the Moria theme returns when mm-hmm. Gandalf like repels with the Balrog. And Flame of Udu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so he's like struck uh, with the whip, and then mm-hmm. um, 
the like when he dies there's this like four chord dirge it's like the mm-hmm. it's the theme of like Gandalf's farewell and I thought it was really so like there there are singers singing this um this theme but there it's wordless it doesn't have any text and I I just felt like that was so powerful it's like there are no words to like describe the sorrow of what just happened so what are they singing it's it's just like a neutral syllable like really? like an ooh or an ah or I, I don't oh. know which one they they chose but there are okay. no words when the singers sing this um like farewell theme mm. yeah. but the solo soprano voice so this four chord dirge is happening but the top voice which is what this soprano is singing in each chord um outlines the four pitches that make up the evil times motif so there are like mm. two motifs happening at the same time. Ah, I don't know where else the evil times motif comes in, but it just seemed very like foreshadowing to me. We see it at the end of the film of the of the Fellowship when Frodo and Sam are heading into Mordor for sure. Yeah, these themes come up more than once, of course, every time. Any last thoughts about Kazadum? I love I love the male voices in this yeah song so much. Like. I am obsessed with them. I think it's a, uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's a choir of Maori singers from New Zealand. So really deep, resonant male voices. Yeah, yeah, I did read that. It's very cool. It's really cool. I mean, it's very like, it's not something you hear, you know, like so low, so yeah. low. Like this is the extreme range. <laughs> really? So like, yeah. can you go much lower than that? I don't know. I mean, I don't think. I mean, I, I'm not a man, so I guess I can't really say. But like, it's low. <laughs> it would be hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to the memorial song, which we wanted to include. So this is not a song that's probably as as well documented, Anna. I don't know if you found a lot about this one when you were looking into stuff, but the context is really sad um, and sweet. Um, so basically, Aragorn is literally wiping away dirt and grime from the tombstone of his mother who sort of sacrificed a lot for him to survive um, and him to have the life that he could and sort of wanted things of him now she's dead and so it's he's about to set off in this journey and he's unsure about you know what his fate will be and who he will become and what he's putting on the line to make this journey to assist the fellowship and right before he sets out on the precipice of this journey he takes the time to visit his mother's grave and sort of check in with his feelings about her. And we don't have to do the whole song, I suppose, but just this little bit I thought was so beautiful at the very beginning that, what would that be, a tenor, Anna? What kind of singing is that? Yeah. Yeah? Well, of course, this this is like, this sounds super chant-like to me, you know, like with the single voice and it's all acapella, there's no accompaniment, it's just one voice. And then the other voices come in, but they're all still in unison, all still singing the same pitch. It's like incredibly intimate in that way it is intimate yeah it describes a really intimate moment right right that was yeah I just it made me think a lot about chant um Mm -hmm. and interesting like the introspection and all of that well Aragorn loves nothing more than introspection (laughs) 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 he's doing some serious introspection at this moment just reading again briefly from doug adams this song marks the first use of the diminishment of the elves that's a, a leitmotif that will reoccur more and more so one big theme 
one big sort of recurring note that we come back to in these films and in the Lord of the Rings generally is the way that the time of elven culture and sort of beauty and that stuff is all sort of passing into the wayside to make way for a world governed by humans. So we are we're hearing these very sad laments, not only for a specific person, but also just sort of for the the world of the elves, which is coming to a close, which had sort of been the sort of heroic and epic start to this place called Middle Earth. It explores, again, from Doug Adams, the elvish concept of death and finality, which will be more thoroughly explored in the two towers. So this is just kind of a beginning snippet of something that will become much more important in the second and third films, the way that the elves are sort of passing into memory, what that's doing to them, their relationships personally, and the world that they're leaving behind. A part that really struck me was actually it, the next part with Bilbo and, uh, and Frodo. Oh, God, this part scared the shit out of me. Yeah. I, <laughs> I remember me too. I was terrified. Oh. <laughs> so what happens, Anna? Describe. Okay, so, well, okay. So um, it's really off-putting because, so you get, you know, this diminishment of the elves theme and then this very, like, cheery bright melody that introduces the scene with Bilbo and Frodo he's like holding up his his vest it's very strikingly different musically to the diminishment of the elves and so I think that the scariest part is like you think that you're out of this one place and you moved into like a lighter spot and then when he sees the ring you get this like giant f this giant minor chord and of course he like looks terrifying it scared the crap out of me but then like after all of that settles down uh the shire theme comes back yeah but it breaks into these two voices and musically what happens is uh, a counterpoint so it's all still the shire theme but it's split into two voices and one is ascending and one is descending and it like represents the parting of Bilbo and Frodo. Right. Yeah. So like one is ascending, one is descending. One is yeah. just taking control of the ring and is now the person tasked with the responsibility of owning it, and one person is sort of dealing with the ramifications and repercussions of giving the ring up. Yeah. So I thought that was really beautiful and just I mean, and so operatic. Like Listen, Anna, listen. These little pauses, they're operatic, as if the score were sung first and the gestures were being created by the director afterward. What Howard Shore said about this specific piece of music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we get that a lot in, I mean, and so the role of the orchestra has changed all over operatic history. Like in each era of, of opera, like romantic, classical, wherever we are, the role of the orchestra with the singers is always changing. But in this like late romantic style, very Wagnerian style, that is absolutely the role of the orchestra. It is a part of the drama and a really, it's all one thing. You, you said it earlier, and I actually, I, I wanted to come back to it. Um, this idea of wanting three beautiful works, the book, the film, and the score. Wagner, we keep coming back to him, he had this word called Gesamtkunstwerk, which literally meant like the all-encompassing work. Like you cannot have one without the other. There are like, uh, so book, film, score, um, in opera, text, drama, music, like it is all one working thing and they uh, are all equal parts of a whole. It's 
one cannot be complete without the other. I experienced for the first time watching these movies again recently and really kind of seeing this, the effects seem much more dated to me than they have, but the music remains so constant to me, right? Like special effects change, but you know, musical scores are eternal, right? Let's move on briefly. This actually, this next one I want to do is called The Passing of the Elves. And this almost reminds me of a folk song. Um, yes. And it's really beautiful. It also is something from the extended edition. So if you are a person who's more of a theatrical cut watcher, you might have missed this one, but I, I encourage you to find it. It's very, very early. So this song is actually earliest in the story. It's right when Frodo and Sam are leaving the Shire, Anna. So they're leaving home. They're setting out on this journey. And it's almost the first introduction of the sort of mystical wider world that they will be brought into. And I love this song because you know how we've been listening to a bunch of that Dolly Parton music? Oh my gosh, Katie. I was literally <laughs> about to say this. I was like, my first impression was the trio remastered album with Dolly, Emmylou Harris, and Linda Ronstadt. Like, <laughs> I just saw this on your Instagram. We love it. I love this music. We've been listening to it constantly. And it's just basically this beautiful three-part harmonies between some of like the three best singers like ever. Oh yeah, um, for sure mad good it's so good and this song reminds me uh if dolly emmylou and linda were like getting on the ships to the gray havens to go back to valinor <laughs> oh, oh my Can god imagine yeah. <laughs> oh my god it dolly part the elf it also gave me big uh oh brother where art thou Yes. Siren. Oh man, I was just listening to that the other day because I was in like Alison Krauss withdrawal and I was like, mm, gotta go back. <laughs> gotta go back. That those were my two impressions, like first impressions listening to this was like Dolly Parton and the girls and Oh Brother Where Art Thou. <laughs> so that is a I think exactly what I thought. This is also a text that is directly taken from Tolkien. And Sarah, you probably know this. Uh, Elbereth Gelthoniel. This is a very, very, very famous poem. Sarah, what about it? Can you tell us? It's so creepy, this song to me too. Like in the way that the siren song from Earth Brother Where Art Thou is like seductive in a way that seems dangerous, right? Right. And I, but I feel like that's this one too. And I, I don't know, like I definitely still get some pretty sexy vibes here, even though it's like creepy. Um, but it's like, but it's, it's still luring. Yes, it is. So I mean, this is, we know of it as um, a hymn, actually, and a hymn to Varda, um, one of the Valar, which, um, of course, everyone probably knows. But it was kind of interesting that this was also one of the songs that was uh, published as a musical rendition by Donald Swan in 67. He was one of the people who had kind of gotten Tolkien's okay for the music and the, kind of the songs that went with the lyrics that Tolkien had actually written. Mm, so this is a song that has its origins, its first recorded origins in something that was actually sanctioned by Tolkien himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this song, because it's a hymn as well to Varda, it's also seen as kind of one of the clearest reflections of the Roman Catholic Marian devotion in Tolkien's work. Oh, uh, yeah, it is very like, it is very, very Magnificat to me. You know? Well, and it's also very close to, there's a Marian hymn um, that's uh, Hail Queen of Heaven, the Ocean Star, etc. Um, and it's very, very similar to the kind of language that's being used um, about Varda being, you know, white glittering, slanting down like a sparkling jewel, glory of the starry host. Anna, the person the song is about would basically be like, if we're thinking about, and this isn't a 100% analog for Tolkien, but if we're thinking about like Greek gods, uh, you know, a, a polytheistic culture, this would have been a, a song composed to praise the goddess of like the stars 
Yeah. I thought that the text was so beautiful. I really loved the, uh, oh, stars that in a sunless year with shining hand by thee were sown. In windy fields now bright and clear, we see our silver blossom blown. Powerful. She In Tolkien's mythology, she created the heavens, basically. Yeah, cool. So she is the person who sort of knit the skies and start got them started. Um, I love this song. I sing it all the time. I, I have it in my head all the time. I love the language. This is, Anna, this is in a language called Sindarin. So there's high elvish and low elvish, sort of. like. So this would have been sort of like the general colloquial language that elves spoke. There was sort of a higher, fancier version of elvish, which draws influences from different languages. But this is kind of the language of romance in the Lord of the Rings, in the world of the Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, I hear that big time. It's also maybe worth noting that kind of getting back to the Marian theme as well. Remember when so Galadriel has given Frodo the glass full of starlight? Yes. To help him on his quest. And when he is in Shelob's cave and pulls it out, then he calls out to Varda to help him. Yes. Yes. So she is directly called upon in the story to invoke her power to fight the powers of evil. And with a song like this, you're not surprised, right? Right. I love this one. Let's move on to our last song, which is really, really different than the one that we just did, Mount Doom. I chose this one, Anna, especially because of Renee Fleming. Can you tell us who is Renee Fleming? Ugh, who isn't she? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So Renee Fleming, uh, okay, so... My best way to describe her is like she's like the Meryl Streep of opera. Oh, okay. <laughs> so like she was, she's done literally everything. I saw her in concert a couple of years ago, and like you know, it was like casually reading through her bio, and it's just like insane. Like nobody does the things that she's done. She was the first opera singer to ever sing, um, uh, first classical singer to ever sing the national anthem at the Super Bowl. It was back in like 2015. It was a very big deal for all opera people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's just done, she's done every major role in every, like, you know, that suited her voice in every major opera house. She does did crossover albums, like in jazz. She has been on a lot of film scores like this one. I feel like she's, I don't know, to me, she's, like probably the most famous soprano of our time, um, American soprano of our time. And I think that people give her some like crap now because they're like, oh, like she's just, she's gotten kind of sloppy with her her fame or like, you know, her, her technique. But I don't know. I think that her voice is like so recognizable and that's like, I don't know that that's so important like when you hear her if you've heard her sing more than three things then like you would hear her and know that it was her voice which makes her super special I definitely can recognize her voice and I don't know many opera singers and I probably can recognize her voice because of this like it's iconic she's and to just kind of double back to this specific moment when she sings what she is singing is the moment when the ring believes it has won its victory like she is singing the victorious battle hymn of the forces of the ring of sauron of evil she is is basically proclaiming the victory right before gollum falls into the 
molten lava and dies, right? So it's the the triumphant moment when Gollum hoists the ring up above him, having just bitten it off of Frodo's finger, and he believes that it's his now, right? Like the ring, the ring has fully won, has fully taken him, has fully compelled him to do this evil thing up to and including his own destruction. So that is what she is singing in this solo. <laughs> Whoa. I know like, it's cool <laughs> but like really cool I was wondering what she was singing so yeah that wow that's cool there's a moment that the music drops and it's just her voice in solo and I wonder what that I think what what Doug Adams describes is that that's what she's singing is like Gollum's triumph the triumph of the ring and fully seducing and corrupting Gollum basically so this pure expression of its power they got Renee for it <laughs> uh yeah that that part is like I mean it's so dramatic like there, there's just so much happening orally and then yeah like everything drops out and it's just this solo voice but then like everything else like slowly re-enters in the background but like her solo voice is still at the forefront um but then like just as quickly as it all went away it all comes back again like strong choir strong orchestra it just ends it's it ends very unfinished tonally like there's no it's like out of the blue it's just over yeah well this you know despite the fact that this signals like an immediate victory right the ring has been destroyed etc it makes sense that it's left unresolved because Frodo and Sam are still in the path of destruction right they're still locked in a collapsing uh, volcano (laughs) these movies just really have everything don't they yeah very operatic (laughs) (laughs) yeah I love that one I wanted to definitely do a Renee one she's featured in a few songs in the return of the king and I was just trying to look and see when these were recorded it must have been sometime in 2002 I suppose 2000 most of this music was like recorded in I think 2001 2002 2003 like when the movies are being released so it would have been right around then I don't know what Renee was up to by then or what her career was like what sort of note her career was on back then but I mean that would have been like peak Um, peak Renee yeah I mean she really started to gain a lot of uh, exposure in the 90s so like mid 90s uh, and so by the early 2000s she was doing everything and I think something that makes her so special is she is so versatile you know she did she sings Mozart she sing or sang I mean she's kind of getting out of the opera stage now she's probably like our like mom and dad's age like maybe a little younger but um Mm -hmm. she's not singing all the roles she used to but in the height of her career I mean she was just so versatile you know she did film scores jazz all different kinds of opera new opera old opera so yeah Seems like a good choice for this. Yeah, totally. Well, um, what else? You guys got any closing thoughts about opera, Howard Shore, choral music in the Lord of the Rings score? What Anna, did this change your perception of Lord of the Rings in general? Oh, absolutely. I like, I never, I just, it's not that I never didn't like it. I just feel like I never really, I, you know, I don't even know the last time I saw the movies. Like, I don't know if I've seen them since I've been an adult and I've definitely never read the books. And so it just, yeah, I, I found myself, you know, when you asked me to do this, I was like, oh yeah, like I'll just like listen to the songs, like have say a couple things about them. But I like dug deep. Like I think I spent four <laughs> hours on this, like <gasps> just because yes. I wanted to, like there, I didn't feel pressure to. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. It really, I mean, cause it's, you know, I, I do sing opera and so there was I, it was really fun to dig into how much classical music and specifically opera influenced the score. I, yeah, I, I definitely changed my, um, it piqued my interest. 
cool. Well, we'll have to watch it sometime. I know. Like, now, <laughs> I gotta go watch them and like figure out what it's all about. <laughs> when you do, just watch it in really like I don't know if you have headphones to plug into your TV, but it's really really fun to listen to, to watch these movies with headphones on as opposed to watching them just like from your TV speakers because you can really pick everything up. It's fun. Any closing thoughts, anybody? Sarah, Anna, anybody? I just was really fascinated. Like, I mean, I learned so much about these scores than I had ever known about them. I mean, being the nerd child I was, I listened to the soundtracks over and over again, and I played piano, so I had gotten the, like, very simplified sheet music for it and all of this, but I had never really delved deep into the actual work that Howard Shore did in putting together this score. So I really appreciated it. It's so, this music is so, so important to me. Like, I love it so much. And I think I've said this before, but like, these movies made me love movies, like for all of the different parts of the production of movies, like made me love all of it. Like cinematography, what's cinematography? I'm like 14 years old watching the DVDs. Like, what is cinematographer? Like, you know, it made me so interested. Like, yeah, I do want to hear about how they made like all the individual set pieces in like particular scales. And I don't really care what part it was, just any part. It's super interesting. Yeah, so it did that for me. All right, cool, guys. Good job. We did it. We did it. It was long. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Good. Oh, yeah. Like, and I, I knew that it would be. Like, I wasn't like, ugh. Oh, no, it was so great, though. Yay, yay, yay. It was cool to dig into it, and I know how special it is to to both of you, and especially to my sister. And so I'm happy to, like, I don't know, dig into it more and, like, get to know it more through it yeah through you all right that was our conversation with my sister anna who i love who's great sometimes she sings on instagram so if you want to follow her you can do that i don't know i didn't ask her to if i could do that shout out but i'm going to and like i said you know during our interview we will post the link to this um playlist that i made that includes these songs that we talked about but all that being said, let's move on to our shadow fact. Sarah, what are we going to talk about this week? This week, like I said, we've got a, a really short shadow fact, um, and it's really just about why Tolkien has so many songs in his books, keeping with the theme of the podcast. Yeah, some people I know, like when they first read Lord of the Rings, they're like, oh, there's all these weird songs in it. I don't like them. What? Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about as well. So, so many people um, who I know who haven't really gotten into Tolkien, maybe have tried it once, or like, well, there's so much walking and there's so many songs. Why do you read this? Um, And I think actually, weirdly enough, there is one answer for both of those things. And I think it's that Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien didn't sit down to write The Lord of the Rings thinking, okay, this is how the plot is going to be. I'm going to write these three books and no more and have a few notes here and there and call it good. He, He created an entire world. And what do you do when you're exploring a new world? You walk around (laughs) and you go and you listen to people and you see what kind of folklore there might be, how people might remember things. And this ties in, I think, very much with Tolkien's idea of creating a history. So Mm -hmm. you need to know what kind of transmission there is for history, for example, through songs, through Mm -hmm. poems. But you also need fun, silly things like, okay, what do the hobbits sing when they're at the Green Dragon? Mm hmm. What do the orcs sing when they've got all of the dwarves treed outside of the goblin <laughs> caves? <laughs> um, I remember when my brother and I were little and my dad had first read The Hobbit to us, then our favorite song for months was the 15 birds in five fir trees. Oh, that's so cute. We had it memorized 
And I mean, yeah, it's a silly song, but we loved it. And it, it's a children's story. So we just absolutely loved it. And then as I got older and I read the Lord of the Rings books, then the songs there had kind of grown up with me. We don't have, you know, elves singing in the valley, you know, the valley is jolly, haha. But we do have some really, really beautiful kind of songs of longing, of history, of sadness, and all of those sorts of things that you want when you're an angsty preteen. <laughs> Yeah, they were very important to me too. And and like we talked about with Anna, now this music informs so much of my love for like soundtrack music and like musical scores. And so much of what Howard Shore did drew on all of that tradition. And he tried to make like a musical ethnography almost where he was taking us through all of these different places and people and experiences and providing almost like a musical historical record of Middle Earth. Mm hmm. And there's, it's actually quite cool. Um, you can find lists online and stuff of how many songs there are in The Hobbit and the three Lord of the Rings books. And I mean, there are so many. I mean, I didn't really even realize how many there were until I started looking at this. And of course, as you start reading through them, you're like, oh, yeah, no, I do remember this. But I mean, they're everywhere and they're they're so lovely. And they tie in very much, I think, to, to Tolkien's ideas of the Anglo-Saxon poetry, and we, we've made mm -hmm. some connections to uh, Wagner and the Nibelungenlied and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even the riddles, the riddles tie very much into Anglo-Saxon culture uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And specifically, have you ever watched um, Benjamin Begbie recite Beowulf? No. Oh, my word. No. Okay, I'll, I'll send you a link later and I'll find a link and post it. Thank you. For everyone, because um, this guy, Benjamin Begbie, reads, well, recites Beowulf in the original language wow with a lute type thing cool that sounds wonderful it's not really singing it's not really speaking it's kind of a mix of both mm -hmm. you're immediately sucked into the story and i think this is how tolkien sees a lot of these songs and poems in his own work as well and i i haven't heard these myself but i have read that there are a couple recordings of tolkien reading passages from the lord of the rings and mm -hmm. When he reads the poems, they have this kind of lyrical quality to them, which you can, I mean, you can pick up when you read it yourself. But for him, I think this is very much harking back to that, to that tradition. Yeah, there seems like there's such a thin line between poetry and song in the world of Lord of the Rings. Like they, all of the pieces of writing that are, you know, in verse form seem like they're always both, which points to his trying to create a world inhabited by people whose cultural products were spoken often, like, right? They were evidence of culture, which were passed down colloquially from person to person, elf to elf, dwarf to dwarf, right? So that indicates something to us as, you know, historians of elves, as we might call ourselves, about the sorts of societies that elves created and that they lived in, right? Just like you would do history of real groups of people, you can sort of do the same sorts of history using these cultural products in Tolkien. Yeah, exactly. And then I think it's it's also really interesting like how inspired so many people have been by the songs and by the poems in Tolkien's writing. Um, so when I was doing my trolling around the internet for various bits of information on this, there are so many websites devoted to people's discussions of the poems of the songs of what they think they might have sounded like all these sorts of things and it's one of the kind of deepest dives I've ever done actually Ooh, wow and I, w I mean I was really surprised there was a really interesting article which I will post a link to on the Middle Earth blog by Michael Martinez which is really just talking about why there are so many songs in the books um, and he's just got a really lovely answer to some of it and very 
straightforward, which is basically there's a there's a whole world and you have to have music in there somewhere. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you, Sarah. That's very I like a short answer. Yeah, well. <laughs> it's true. I think it's a perfect explanation. And with that, I think we should close it out. What do you say, my friend? Until next time. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Enjoy. Have a good week, month. We don't know yet. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Rewatch all the movies. Live your best life. Yeah. It's January. It's cold. Rewatch the movies. Talk soon. Bye. Bye-bye.